If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our reading this morning comes from the Reg Veda, the oldest writings from the oldest religion in the world. First, there was nothing, neither existence nor non-existence. What changed? First, there was neither death nor deathlessness no night and day, yet one breathed, self-contained. There was only that one. Darkness hid darkness, all was water. By heat, life force arose. Mind grew from desire of the one. Even now, poets find depths of reality in nothingness. Above and below were born, Seed placers above, impulses below. None knows of creation's inception. Even gods came later. So, creation exists, self-formed or not. Only the one knows, and maybe not even him. Here ends the reading from another tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. As most of you know, I've been teaching a book study on Sunday afternoons using a wonderful book by Barbara Brown Taylor entitled Holy Envy. It's a memoir written by a recently retired college professor and former Episcopal priest who looks back over many years of teaching a required course on world religions at Piedmont, a small private liberal arts college in the foothills of the Appalachians. Some of you may remember that the Piedmont Singers came to perform at Mayflower not long ago, same place. The course is called Religion 101. It's required, part of the general ed curriculum, and meant to introduce undergraduates who live in that overwhelmingly Christian culture of North Georgia to other faith traditions. She covers Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism and Islam, not to mention a look at Christianity, about which it turns out her students know remarkably little. Barbara discovered that over the years as she taught the course, something strange happened. She found things to envy in all the faith traditions that she taught. When she studied Judaism, she wanted to be a rabbi. And when she taught Buddhism, she wanted to be a a monk. It was only when she taught Christianity that the fire sometimes sputtered because her religion looked so different once she saw it lined up with the others. 
In fact, she was constantly aware of what she described as holy envy, not the jealous kind of envy, that's one of the seven deadly sins, but a positive kind of envy that occurs when other faith traditions deepen our spirits, make us re-examine what we believe, make us question why so much American Christianity seems to lack the very grace it is always espousing. I will spend the next four weeks preaching about this book and our class and especially the field trips we are taking, which mirror the field trips that Dr. Taylor took her students on and yet four, students, uh, four um, sermons will not begin to do any of it justice. I mean, the two field trips we've already taken have been amazing. And each person who's gone will have a different story to tell you, but this much is certain. It is one thing to take a course on world religion, learn some basic facts about, say, how the first Hindus arrived on American soil, but it is quite another thing to drive out of our parking lot and turn left on Northwest 63rd and begin driving east until it becomes Northeast 63rd Street and then into the wooded area just past Lake Aluma at Coltrane Road, there to take a left again and find something secluded in the woods there none of us knew existed. The Hindu Temple of Oklahoma, a stunning white marble building <clears throat> where we took off our shoes and then entered a world we knew nothing about, surrounded by shrines with multiple Hindu gods whose names we could not pronounce. We were met by a smiling priest named Arkarya Veda, <clears throat> who sat in the lotus position and talked to us for 90 minutes and got stronger as he went about the essentials of Hinduism. In a moment of comic relief, his cell phone went off before he got started. He laughed and confessed, with technology it is the same everywhere. In fact, he laughed a lot and seemed to take delight in teaching us. While we were setting up the chairs, because there were, it's a large class, Dr. Veda let me know that there must be a clear line of sight between two of the gods at opposite ends of the room. You see, Hinduism has major gods and minor gods and so many other gods that there just seem to be so many gods in so little time. Some have more than one set of arms, others have the heads of animals. Snakes are wrapped around their necks. Some are white as the temple marble, some as dark as cobalt. But these two particular gods, Dr. Veda told me, they must be able to make eye contact across the room. I knew I was not in Kansas anymore. <clears throat> then we got right down to business. Dr. Veda said Hindus believe in monism that all things have a single divine source, but they practice their faith by devotion to many faces of that single God, expressed by many avatars. People need to see a physical manifestation of the one spirit, he said, just as that one spirit is present in all of you and in everything that exists. He used one hand to represent this one God and the other hand to represent us and he put them above his head and he brought them together and he said, this union is what religion is all about, reuniting the particular with the eternal. And then when it was above his head, it seemed like an intellectual metaphor, but when he brought it slowly down to where the heart chakra is, 
It seemed personal and spiritual. And I have never had that gesture explained so clearly to me. And let's face it, this beats a handshake every time. Holy envy. <clears throat> Hinduism is the third largest religion in the world. Gandhi, its most famous practitioner, with over a billion followers. And it is the oldest religion in the world, stretching back 4,000 years. The Reg Veda is one of the sets of sacred writings in Hinduism that you heard Lori read from a moment ago. And it may be the Rig Veda, the oldest known collection of Hindu writings, and therefore the oldest collection of sacred literature in the world. But to this day, even as it continues to evolve, Hinduism has, listen carefully, no single founder, no single sacred text, no set pattern of worship, and no central statement of belief. Well, how can you run a religion like that? I mean, what do they argue about? <laughs> what do they organize crusades over? What do they slaughter infidels to defend? Crazy. There is great diversity in Hinduism, as a guide told Dr. Taylor when she took her students to a visit uh, in, in Atlanta, a Hindu temple in Atlanta. He said, quote, you all are thinking of Hinduism as a single shop, but it's much more like a mall with shops of every kind under its roof. Some shops are large and popular, others are small and specialized, yet everyone inside them identifies as Hindu. So just like in Christianity, it is good to remember, when you have met one Hindu, you have met exactly one Hindu. The gods have a thousand names, and in Hinduism, as our teacher told us, listen carefully, we worship idols. I don't know at that moment what else I was thinking about, but my, my head jerked around, and I remember thinking to myself, did he just say that, we worship idols? The hair on my boyhood Church of Christ neck stood up, <laughs> and I remember Mr. Nye, my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, telling us one day, there's nothing worse than worshiping idols. Paul warns against idol worship. And the mother and father of the Ten Commandments is number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Make no graven image. So which is it? Who's right? And would that Mr. Nye could have joined us on this field trip and gotten to meet Dr. Veda. Then he might have learned that what Eastern religious traditions call Idols we call icons, very important difference. Representations of the divine or some characteristic of the divine, we say, or, iconog or iconography or icons, but not God itself. And this difference, however, doesn't seem to bother Hindus. They, they do not believe that the supreme God, the one divine unity in all creation, is fully present in those shrines that surrounded us and the fantastic figures they housed. They worship them because they point to the mystery, just as Catholics worship statues of the Virgin Mary and Congregationalists, who think they don't have any icons, strip their sanctuary of all iconography, rejecting stained glass and naming their sanctuaries meeting houses. That's what we're in a New England meeting house 
where people, I guess, meet God and one another, and in which there can be all sorts of community meetings, but absolutely no statues of the Virgin Mary. But let's be clear. This architecture is making its own statement. This is its own kind of iconography. It should really be called non-Catholic Max. <laughs> because it's deliberately as far from the smells and bells of the high church tradition as we could get. But instead of getting rid of the idea of icons, we just produced our own. I'll give you one example. Take a look at those faux columns behind me, those on either side of the window that don't really hold anything up. Have you ever wondered about those? I mean, we know what columns stand for. They're age-old symbols of the connection between heaven and earth. So are these columns, which really don't hold anything up, meant to symbolize support for some invisible reality? a portal into some unseen, transcendental world, our own shrine to what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the oversoul, you betcha. That's what they represent. That's New England transcendentalism put as an icon in front of you every Sunday morning. But enough about our shrines and the idols we worship and back to Hinduism. As we sat in the temple and listened to Dr. Veda, worshipers would come in, move around the room from shrine to shrine, praying. I watched them and sensed little difference between this practice and Catholics who pray to certain saints or move through the stations of the cross. As it turns out, human beings do not need to worship idols as gods, but they, they do need that to see something tangible that opens them to the mystery of that which they cannot see. Because all Eastern religious traditions agree on one thing. All that you can see will one day be gone. Impermanence is the great reality. The eternal is everything you cannot see. The great grand godfather of all teachers of world religions was Houston Smith. And he said this about Hinduism. It is the great psychologist of the religions. It knows that people are different and offers them different paths to union with the divine. Some choose a scholarly path and others a path of service. Some choose a path of meditation, others a path of devotion. Some devote themselves to Vishnu and some to the divine mother and then some shun the worship of deities altogether striving to realize God in themselves with no decoys. So as a Hindu, you get to choose your major God, all of which emphasize different divine realities. And then you get to practice with other people who chose that God as well. But there is apparently, Dr. Veda said, no competition among the God groups and no efforts to evangelize or steal sheep. Now, what a concept. Nobody has to get up in a meeting and say, I used to be a Ganeshite, but thank God I'm now a Vishnuite, for indeed I have seen the light. No. <laughs> One of Dr. Taylor's colleagues said to her once that the problem with Christianity these days, and he did not mean this as a compliment, is that we're all becoming Hindus. 
picking and choosing and designing our own way instead of trusting the one that Jesus has already laid out for us. Now, this is one of the great myths about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, among many, that he was the answer man. Um, it turns out in the New Testament, a friend of mine did a content analysis project, wrote a book about it, and Jesus in the New Testament asks 304 questions and answers only three of them. So Jesus was actually the question man. Makes him much more like an Eastern teacher, a teacher of righteousness, of wisdom. So the next time you see that familiar bumper sticker that reads, Jesus is the answer, you can politely ask, to which question? When Dr. Taylor took her students to the Hindu temple in Atlanta, it was the first time most of them had taken off their shoes to enter a house of worship, and then they got escorted to an alcove where, um, where Padmavathy, a manifestation of the goddess Lakshmi, was being bathed, dressed, and covered with fresh flowers on behalf of her devotees. And by the way, our class just decided on the spot that one of our favorite NPR voices, Lakshmi Singh, must surely be named after the Hindu god Lakshmi. We're so sure we don't want to look it up because we're afraid it might be wrong. As her students watched this decidedly sensual ritual, Dr. Taylor was reminded how disadvantaged so many Christians are by our tortured dualism of body and soul. We're not good with bodies. When it comes to the Hindu god Shiva, who is the god of destruction, a student raised his hand and said, well, why would anyone worship a god who destroys? But in our class at the temple, Dr. Veda said, you are confusing destruction with killing. This is not what happens. Shiva does not kill, but rather Shiva is part of the oldest and most important cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. That's the only way all things come to be, that they come to be and then are no longer so new things can come to be. For as much as we fear death, just imagine living forever or just not getting out of the way and leaving some room for the kids. Besides, we actually celebrate one image of the Shiva in Christian music called Shiva Nataraya, or Lord of the Dance, which is familiar to Christians because of the hymn by the same name, most familiar as the Shaker tune. I danced in the morning when the world was begun, and I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun, and I came down from heaven and I danced on the earth. At Bethlehem, I had my birth. That's a bunch of Hinduism with Jesus stuck in the end of it. In our book, we learned that although the lyricist and English songwriter named Sidney Carter probably had no knowledge of it, there is this apocryphal book called Acts of John, it didn't make it into our Bible, in which the Last Supper is not described as a meal, but as a dance, where Jesus commands his disciples to circle around him on the night before he dies, and when they do, he dances inside the ring, singing a long mystical hymn to which they respond with choruses of amen. A dancing Last Supper. Our class even considered we should try that at a communion service. 
sometime in the future, but then we weren't sure you all are ready for that. One of the most dramatic moments in Dr. Taylor's description of her student field trip to the Hindu temple came when she found a young woman in tears named Mariah, whom she described as, quote, a tense girl in her first year of college with sharp features and a troubled countenance. She was running out of the building, running out of the Hindu temple, sobbing. They are all so lost, she said, and they don't even know it. It's just so sad to me seeing people worshiping statues when they could be worshiping Jesus instead. Then she said tearfully, it just breaks my heart. Dr. Taylor knew that this wasn't the time or the place for a discussion about pluralism or the empathic imagination or loving the neighbor. And besides, she understood why Mariah would be upset given how Mariah had been raised and what she was taught. So Barbara just said, why don't you stay out here and pray? It's a beautiful night. We'll be along soon. She figured the Jesus that loved Mariah and that Mariah loved, they could take care of each other for a little while. And so with one distraught student out on the porch in tears, Dr. Taylor goes back into the temple to discover another crisis on her hands. Their host has decided to include the students in an actual Hindu ritual at the alcove of the god Vishnu. The priest has been asked to perform a prayer ritual for the group, asking for the Lord's blessing on the students and their studies, and he breaks into a chant and starts tossing flower petals at the deity's feet, and suddenly Dr. Taylor realizes her students have crossed over from observers to participants, and they're expected to be participants, or it would insult their host. And the priest picks up a bowl and a spoon with some kind of liquid in it, unknown, and, and they are expected to cup their hands and receive the liquid and then drink it, which most of them do. Then the priest picks up another bowl and it has almonds in it. He is offering almonds to the students in a ritual called prasad, where food that has been offered to the Lord is now being offered by the Lord back to us. You know what we call that in church, communion. But in the Hindu temple, the students don't make that connection and there's high anxiety all around. Meanwhile, Mariah's out on the porch crying and Dr. Taylor wonders how many of the students will place a call that night to their tuition-paying parents to detail how many cardinal sins they have committed by enrolling in Religion 101. These are called Vishnu's Almonds, which is the title Dr. Taylor gave to the chapter in the book on Hinduism, Vishnu's Almonds. But those who ate them all survived it and lived to talk about it in class. They asked questions like, what is it really that makes bread and wine a sacrament but not holy water and almonds? Well, our traditions, of course. So again, our Mayflower class, which can get a little punchy sometimes, agreed we might consider offering some almonds along with communion bread sometime just to remember our Hindu neighbors. Uh, we'll see about that. One of our group said he even found an almond lying on the ground outside of the Oklahoma temple. 
and he made the connection to what he'd read in the book. And that, my friends, is how a book study becomes something more than just a book study. I think it is safe to say uh, that about this much, all of us are now certain. It is so much better to be in the worship space of our neighbors than it is just to read about and study our neighbors. And let's face it, if Hindus came in here and started poking around our things, wouldn't they find much here that was strange? Yes. And besides, is the image of Vishnu any stranger to us than the image of the crucified Jesus hanging on the cross to someone with no knowledge of Christianity? We see everything through our own tribal eyes even before our eyes get truly opened. And, and this does not mean we have to idealize other faith traditions because they all have their problems. Um, <coughs> Hinduism is very patriarchal and actually started the caste system which degenerated into terrible treatment of the lower caste. So we weren't, we're not idealizing Hinduism, we're trying to get to know Hindus. And you would like, I think, this way to know that this sermon ends and this chapter ends, and that is how the story of Mariah ended. Mariah not only made an A in the class, but ended up acing the final assignment in Dr. Taylor's class, which was to design an interfaith chapel for Piedmont College. Mariah's work surpassed all the others. Her design was round, with nothing inside but polished floors, walls, and ceilings made entirely of black marble. There was no religious symbols or furniture, but one feature made the space unique. The lighting is arranged so that no matter where people look, all they will be able to see are each other's faces reflected back at them. The self and the neighbor the self and the neighbor, the most important religious relationship of them all, made visible, as she put it, in the dark marble of God. That's the girl that was crying out on the porch. And when you hear a story like this, you know if we give up on higher education, we have given up on each other. So, one down, three to go. Next Sunday, if you will be so kind as to return, to, to come back, we will talk about Buddhism. I'm really looking forward to the Buddhism sermon because we took a field trip to the Dharma Center and it became absolutely obvious to me this church is chock full of closet Buddhists. <laughs> and, and, and may even be led by one. So remember this, remember this. And until we meet again, namaste. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.